Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 93. For those that are watching this service or listening to it later, you might want to consider three passages of Scripture that we have had read to us. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 through 41, about the presumptuous sin there of a man picking up sticks in the Sabbath day and how the Lord's Word was for him to be stoned to death. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, which tells us that sanctification, or being holy, is abstaining from fornication. And then Psalm 77 and its verses that describe Asaph having a reckoning with himself in his devotions that he had been discouraged without cause, and that if he would spend some time thinking upon the good works of God, he could recover himself. And so we will take up two traits of great Christians and great churches that we seek to follow. The goal of this sermon series called Higher Ground is to perfect our church by God's inspired goals for the church and for our personal growth. The Bible hasn't left us ignorant of what the Lord wants us to increase in. And so we want to identify those. By God's grace, we want to grasp those traits that would make us a better church and make us better Christians. We want to give a church to Jesus that is exceeding magnificent and of fame and glory, wherever it might be carried about the believers here in Greenville. Gold and timbers and stones were only for the Old Testament, were living stones in the temple of God. And you ought to consider yourself, you know, are you just some mortar? Just a field stone? Or are you marble? Granite? Polished? Unpolished? Wrought? Has the Lord chiseled off your rough edges and made you more beautiful for His temple? We want to be the best stones that we can. He is the one that chose that metaphorical language that instead of David hiring strangers in Israel to be masons and to hew stones, we get to do that in our own lives and be fit together and compacted by that which every joint and part supplies as the New Testament declares very clearly to us. We want to give Him the greatest, best church that we can. Every joint and part of a church is love of Christ and personal holiness and brotherly love and service and the other things that the New Testament teaches. We need Paul's attitude toward past accomplishments, which I mentioned in opening our service this morning, lest we think we've apprehended the goal. Paul was not content. Paul, in prison, toward the end of his life, said that he had not yet apprehended that for which he had been apprehended. God saved Paul, chose him, and put him in the ministry for a purpose. And though he had already, long before, labored more abundantly than the other apostles, it wasn't enough for Paul. He still wanted to give the Lord more and press on toward the mark, the finish line for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You should want to be reminded of ratcheting up your performance because you're soon going to meet the Lord. And He's not the compromiser that you've all worked for and the compromisers that make up our government. And He's not nearly so easy as I am. He will be asking for a return on His pounds that He's given you. They're His pounds. They're not yours. 
We came into this world with nothing. We leave with nothing. But in between, we can get some interest in return, some ROI, some ROA, return on assets, or return on investment for Him for saving us. And that's what He wants and expects from us. And we want to give that to Him. We want to advance in the priorities that the Bible identifies of what things are more important than other things. The Bible says the bodily exercise profiteth little, but spiritual exercise in a godliness is profitable unto all things. And those kind of comparisons are throughout the pages of Scripture. We want to learn them, remember them, and apply them in our church and in our homes. You know, Jesus commended the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 for nine good things. But is nevertheless just kind of blows them all away, doesn't it? Who really cares? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee that you've lost your first love. Holding truth steadfast is important, but growing in grace of that truth is more important. And we want the more important thing in this particular series. Remember the divine rule that to whom much is given shall much be required. We've been given much. This study is win, win, win. A better church glorifies God better. A better church will benefit you spiritually better. And it will also prepare you to meet the Lord in the day of judgment. Well, I'm not going to belabor the individual points that I make, like the big subject that I'm going to introduce in just a moment. I'm not going to belabor it, because all we need to do is be reminded of it. And be reminded of some of its general the general statements made in Scripture about it. You know, altering our priorities is not rocket science. It doesn't take a great deal of intellectual power at all. It just requires the humility to hear the Word of God as if it's being spoken to you personally and to make some changes in your life. Because right now, your life is wrong. All you, ha- all you would have to do is have one nanosecond in the brilliant light of the presence of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you would know that you are corrupt and polluted. And I don't mean legally, and I don't mean vitally. I mean practically. The things like speech that condemned Isaiah so quickly in Isaiah chapter 6. And so here we are in the house of the Lord. We want to be like Asaph and David, and let the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the two together, convict our hearts as if we were in His presence where His holiness would expose our false blemishes and sins. We don't need a major overhaul. We just need to make some modest adjustments that we can be more pleasing in His sight and then to abound more and more in those things. And so we are at Psalm 93 and verse 5. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Amen. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. That word becometh means to adorn or to make beautiful. Holiness makes the house of God or our church beautiful in the sight of the Lord. And He expects that forever. His church of the Old Testament in that temple, they worshipped in the beauty of holiness. In the New Testament you had read that our sanctification or living holy lives is what He wants from us now. Be ye holy for I am holy. 
Our bodies are the habitation of God through the Spirit, and He expects us in body and spirit to be holy. And heaven's house and heaven's place of worship will be perpetually and perfectly holy. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. I am very thankful for our building committee. And I'll say more today, likely, maybe. Don't you worry about the fact that you haven't landed on the greatest facility for us yet. Take your time and relax. We're content. We're trusting you. We're not worried at all. But remember this, and we should all remember this, as so many get led astray with it, a nice building is not holiness. A nice building doesn't become thy house, O Lord. It's holiness that becomes thine house or makes it beautiful. And so instead of us overspending or spending a lot or whatever to get us some fancy church building, that isn't all that important to the Lord at all in comparison to the holiness of every one of us sitting in the pews or standing in the pulpit this morning. Lord, help us to remember this short little clause here. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. That is the perpetual adornment of God's house that we want to give Him. Holiness in our minds, holiness in our hearts, holiness in our speech, holiness in our actions. Lord, help us to that end. So let's consider it for a few minutes. Holiness, personal holiness, is trait number seven that we want to give the Lord individually and as a church, that we are a holy church because we are a congregation of holy people. Holiness. Psalm 29. And let's see those words that David used at times about worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. It's amazing how churches will think that if they have stained glass of some long-haired Jesus with a disc over his head, that they're in a holy place. People, people actually call the sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean the holy land. You know, but the, this house right here can be made holy by our holy lives. Right. And your body is the house or the temple of the Holy Ghost. What's, how, what's he called? Did you notice in your King James Bibles today that you had a capital S and a small h when it was identifying the Holy Ghost? To get your attention? That he was focusing upon what the Spirit is? Holy. Holiness. Right. Holiness to the Lord. Psalm 29 and verse 2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. He is holy and He expects us to be holy and we want to worship Him in holiness. Real worship is not a praise band, but personal holiness. Because it says worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It doesn't say worship the Lord with lots of amplifiers. It says worship Him in the beauty of holiness. And so let's give the Lord that in our church. If we want to give Him a great church, then we need to be holy individually. Our families need to be holy. And our whole church needs to be holy. Here's the problem, and I'm going to get to the problem further in a moment. The problem is that we live in a generation of unholy Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 3, when it describes the 19 traits of the perilous times, and it is describing Christians and churches, when it does so, says of them that they are unholy. 
Holiness is that perfect purity and consecration of everything that you are and have to the glory of God separated from all worldly or corrupting uses. Let me see if we can word it a different way. Holiness is to be without sin and morally pure and perfect, dedicated to the glory and use of God. Holiness. Here's the problem for our church and its future. If I continue to preach the same, and those that follow me continue to preach the same, by emphasizing Bible holiness, we will, every year, look more and more strange to the world and to ourselves because we will appear more and more different from those around us that call themselves Christians. It is a dilemma and a difficulty that we live in, but I hope that you're up for the challenge. I love the challenge. I want to be different for the Lord's sake. And we want to set a difference. We want to draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to be holy. You can be whatever you want, but we're warning you that the Bible requires you to be holy if you're going to worship Him. But we will look more and more strange. And your children will will know that we're more and more strange as they mingle with the unholy Christians around us. And we need to help each other be holy. That is to be morally pure and perfect and sinless. Of course we can't reach it in absolute terms, but we can certainly confess our sins, have them forsaken, and continue to press on in holy conversation. Holiness is identified and exalted as God's will for higher ground, and that was read to you by Ryan. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 has been my theme verse, but as we moved on from verse 1 down through verse 8, the holiness there was God's will. I mean, the things that we should abound in more and more was God's will for us to be sanctified and to live a holy life in sexual terms. Then it goes on to brotherly love terms. Then it goes on to professional terms. And then it goes on to the heavenly perspective that we ought to have in the final five verses of that chapter. But the things that Paul and his fellow laborers taught the Thessalonians that they ought to abound in more and more in order to please God start with holiness. And immediately it goes after sex. So we want to think of that preeminently as one of the great ways in which we can be holy for Him. And that is, and sexual thoughts and sexual sins start in your heart, are pursued in your mind, come out of your lips or your fingertips today, and then into actions. Lord help us. That was 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. God is holy and He expects us to be holy. Now, holiness is not a popular subject to preach. That's why we can generally say no one preaches about it. Because your flesh hates holiness. Your flesh loves its lusts, which are the opposite of holiness. And so it's a very uncomfortable subject. No one likes to preach it because they're not going to get very flattering responses for it. No one likes to hear it. Because it's just flat out boring to the flesh and the devil will do everything in his power to make it so and the world has no use for it at all. 
What would the world even use the word holy for except to use it as an adjective to describe excrement? A cow or a dog? Holy cow! Can you believe what the world... Landon, the world uses things so corrupt. Can you believe the way that they attach the word holy to the things that they do? Now, now I was kind. You know I was, don't you? Mark your calendars. I did not say what I'm thinking. The, the, this world is so corrupt. But do you know one second when you meet God, do you know that He has four incredible creatures that day and night do not cease to declare, Holy! 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 Lord God Almighty! The thrice holy God that we worship. We live in perilous times. And they're more open about it, more flagrant about it. And we want to be more committed than ever to be holy against the onslaught of the worldly lusts around us. Verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 1. But as He which hath called you is holy so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation is your lifestyle. In every part of your lifestyle, be holy. In every part of it, in all manner of how you live, be holy. Be perfectly and morally pure in the sight of God, consecrated for His use against the corruption and pollution of this world. Verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's a quotation out of Leviticus. You read last evening Isaiah 6. God revealed Himself to Isaiah. And Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up. And there were the seraphim declaring, Holy! 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 Lord God Almighty! And Isaiah was immediately convicted about the pollution of his mouth. He said, Woe is me! I'm undone! Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, for my unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice the word unclean. Righteousness is legal pure perfection. Righteousness is legal perfection. Holiness is religious perfection. It's different. It's cleanliness versus dirtiness. It's filthiness versus holiness. And immediately he knew that his speech was filthy and foolish and morally impure in the sight of this blessed Perfectly holy being the Lord, high and lifted up. It is my pleasure to preach this to you today. But it is also my burden. It may be your pleasure in your spirit to hear it, but it is your burden to your flesh to hear about holiness. Everything in your life ought to be purified and washed and consecrated and dedicated to the Lord's use in a morally perfect way. You had Brother Zach read to you from Numbers chapter 15 about the blue ribbon, the blue fringe, the ribbon of blue that they had to put on the fringes of their garments. And when they saw that, they would remember, we once stoned a man for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day because he did it presumptuously. David could eat the showbread and not suffer for it. Jesus could have his disciples pick and eat corn on the Sabbath day and not suffer for it because they had a reason. A justifiable reason of mercy. This man didn't. 
And you just assume that by reading the rest of the Bible to know that he did it presumptuously because that's the context of Numbers 15. The difference between sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. He was stoned to death. So they wore this little, this little blue ribbon around the fringe of all their garments. All the Israelites. Because a man got stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And it was a reminder to them that God was holy. When Moses met the Lord at the burning bush, what was he told to do? Get his shoes off. Because he was standing on holy ground. When we come in here, we are on holy ground. And it's not the latitude and the longitude. And it's not this floor. It's we're in the presence of the Lord. He inhabits His local churches. What about Joshua? When he met the captain of the Lord's host. Same thing. Get your shoes off. You're on holy ground. We want to remember that. His name is holy. He is thrice holy. The four beasts know it. And he swears by it. When God swears, He swears by His holiness. The perfect purity, sinlessness of His character and nature. Since you're at Peter, flip over a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 3 and let's be reminded of how we ended those epistles and the exhortation they had. Verse 11, Seeing then... We learned something from that passage. We were reminded of a coming event that is not far away. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Everything in your life, this entire world, the universe is going to be dissolved. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? We've got to be holy Because the Bible tells us to, and He is coming again. And the obvious conclusion is, if all of this is going to be burned up, and we are going to stand unsuspended, I mean, suspended by God's mercy and grace before Him in judgment, we want to meet Him having lived holy lives while we're in the world. And so we learn from Peter. Holiness is spiritual purity or sinlessness, sinlessness. By consecration of ourselves to His use without any pollution. We are made holy by the work of sanctification. The word sanctification in the Bible is not a difficult word. It is a word to make us holy. To sanctify something is to consecrate something. When we refer to a place to meet God as a sanctuary, it is because it is a holy place. When we refer to a person that is dedicated to God as a saint... We're referring to a sanctified person. The word sanctification is not difficult. It simply means to make holy or to consecrate for God's use. And we want to be holy and consecrated. God does it first legally. He hath chosen us in Christ Jesus before the world began that we should be holy holy and without blame before Him in love. And when we are born again, we are given a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. But then, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, that it is the will of God, even our sanctification. So though God has chosen us, and Christ has made us, and the Spirit has given us true holiness, we are to consecrate our lives and be holy. 
Almighty God, our Father in heaven, bless us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would be more holy than we have been individually and as a church. Save us, Lord, from this unholy generation. Holiness is extreme and it is intolerant. Thus the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. It hates any and all evil or moral compromise. It's impossible to serve God without it. Look at Joshua chapter 24. Joshua's last words to Israel. And they're hard. He knew that nation. The last chapter of Joshua. You know verse 15 where Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because he's, he could make sure of that in his home. And if someone in his home didn't want to serve the Lord, then they could be put out of his home. But here we have verse 19, And Joshua said unto the people, Joshua 24, 19, Ye cannot serve the Lord. Now that's not very encouraging, is it? You say he needs a better pulpit manner. Robert Schuler could help him by saying more positive things to the congregation. Ye cannot serve the Lord. For He is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. The way that you rebels live, God is not going to accept your worship. He's not going to forgive you without your repentance. He doesn't think you're worthy of forgiveness just because of who you are. You are not going to be able to do it. You are going to have to change your attitude and the way your fathers and you have pursued His worship. You cannot serve the Lord. And he goes on to describe them that, uh, you know, if you, if you forsake Him like your fathers did before you, He's going to have to judge you for it. And so we want to remember warnings like this that we cannot do it without holiness. So if we want a great church to give to the Lord, we want it to be a holy church. Much of the world likes to appeal to 1 John and say that God is love, and, and we don't deny it. But when I look in 1 John and try to find out where they found those three words connected, I find it later in the epistle than I find what is in chapter 1. Right. Chapter 1 tells us how our joy can be full and we can have fellowship with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And what does it tell us about God in chapter 1? God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. And so we need to be holy. That light is the light of His holiness and His purity, contrary to any darkness, ignorance, or sin of this world. We want to remember that priority. God is first holy, Then He chooses to be love, and His holiness are the parameters for His love. He hates all workers of iniquity, because until they're put in Christ and chosen to be holy and without blame, He cannot love them. His love is bounded in by His holiness. His holiness is not bounded in by His love. And that is a very different way of looking at God and the way He applies His religion. Today, like today, people want to talk about, but God is love like His holiness is not all that severe. Yes, it is. His holiness limits His love because He can only love those objects that are holy. And so in a practical way, I said practical way, 
He can only love us or show His love toward us or enter into an intimate and personal relationship with us when we are living a holy life. And we want God to come down upon this church and in this church and we're going to get Him by following His rules. And that is being holy. Number seven, the trait that we want to learn today. One of them. No man can see God without holiness, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 14. Just think of the use of this word in the Bible. The person of the Godhead called the Spirit, Him, we refer to as the Holy Spirit. This Bible, if we use the Bible terminology for it, is called the Holy Scriptures. Holiness. The angels that did not sin are called the holy angels. The people of God are called the holy people. The place where God was worshipped was called the holy place. His covenant was called His holy covenant. He was worshipped on a holy hill. His holy temple and His name is holy. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. But our problem, let's, let's look at it. I mentioned it already a time or two. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and see one of those 19 character traits of the perilous times of the last days describing the compromise of Christians and churches with the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Timothy, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Does that mean that men of this world were better in the past than they are now? No, it's talking about Christians changing. Christians changing. And the more they change, the stranger we're going to look. And the stranger we look, the more they're going to make fun of our religion. And the stranger we look and the more they make fun of our religion, the harder it's going to be for our children and youth to understand what I'm teaching you right now. I hope I've said it enough times to warn you. You want to teach your children to love the holiness of God and to know those examples like Numbers 15, that He doesn't put up with a lackadaisical, light-hearted, easy, relaxed approach to His worship. Everybody wants church to be easy. They want to show up for a little Bible lesson and then go home. But it's a lifestyle. That's why that word conversation kept popping up. The word conversation. It's our lifestyle. We want to be holy in and out of this place. Whether we're holy here doesn't hardly matter. It's holiness in the other 164 hours when we're not here in a week's time. This know also, verse 1, that in the last times perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Lord, help us. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof in verse 5. They will turn their ears away from hearing the truth because they'll want to hear fables and be entertained instead. Seeking entertainment and fables, they don't consecrate themselves anymore. There's no consecration dropping into New Spring this morning. All you got to do is have on a pair of short shorts and a wife beater and a cup of java in your hand. And just bebop on in there. When the Bible says that He wants to be worshipped in reverence and godly fear. And that is a New Testament description. He is holy. And when we see pictures of heaven, there's no one bouncing around in short shorts and a tank top. 
They're falling on their faces before Him. Even the seraphim are shielding their eyes with their heads down, proclaiming Him thrice holy. We sound so old-fashioned. Do you know these words are coming out of my mouth with a chain, with me pulling them? Because I know it is strange to your ears and to mine because of what's going on in the Christian world around us. They laugh, strobes, smoke, laughter, jumping around, craziness in the house of the, in the house of the Lord. Lord help us. We want to give you holy worship. It's rarely preached, less seldom demanded, never enforced in today's churches. Look at Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. There's 168 hours in a week and you spend them doing all sorts of things and you can maintain your discipline to do them for a long period of time. So just hang with me for a few minutes. This is holiness unto the Lord to be in His house and reading His holy scriptures and trusting His Holy Spirit to make use of them to our hearts that He has made holy by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 32. Behold, Look at this. This whole chapter is about false teachers and pitiful compromising pastors. Chapter 23 and verse 32, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them, Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. It doesn't matter what numbers they have. You should hear New Spring defend itself through its so-called pastor. He says, all those that object against what we're doing, just drive by and look at our parking lot. Well, now isn't that a noble measure? I can't find that anywhere in the Word of God. And in the 25 traits I have for great churches, not one of them is the number of cars in the parking lot. If the Lord wants to make our church holier by getting rid of some strange children among us, there's going to be fewer cars in the parking lot, but the church is going to be more pleasing to the Lord. And we believe that because the Bible teaches it. We don't deal with lightness like that. Mark your calendars for the second time. That is ridiculous. Their lightness. Verse 28, The prophet that hath a dream or a parking lot, let him tell a dream or count the cars in his parking lot. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Lord, help us. This will be one of the hardest traits for us to embrace and practice because our flesh is so strongly against it. Our vile natures hate holiness. Nothing is holy or sacred anymore. All is profaned. You know, laughing in church and joking in the pulpit. Nothing is sacred. From the unborn to sodomy. Nothing is holy anymore. We all know that it's an important point in the Old Testament. But it's an important point in the new as well. You know, people say that Romans is their favorite book. Why is Romans your favorite book? Because it tells you about the grace and mercies of God in 11 chapters. But you know what it tells you in the first verse? 
of application of those first 11 chapters. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy. So Romans is your favorite book. Well, since Romans is your favorite book, I will expect you to be the holiest in this church. Don't just go into Romans and read the first nine chapters or the first 11 chapters and rejoice in God's predestinating grace in Christ Jesus and that He's the second Adam and He's undone the first Adam and we love all those chapters and we love those verses. Let's remember that that book, as soon as Paul gets done declaring 11 chapters of God's mercies, he applies it for them to live holy lives. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19, what? There shouldn't even be a discussion because you should understand this. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, and our body and our spirit should be holy for Him. And the context here is not what you smoke. The context here is fornication. Just like we learned in 1 Thessalonians 4, because if you back up just one verse to verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? How could you even consider doing that? Because the Holy Ghost is in your body, and when you commit fornication, you connect the Holy Ghost to a fornicator of the world. So reasons the apostle. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. It's an important point for our church to be what it should be. We love this verse. The first verse of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Having therefore these promises... Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is what we want to do. The motivation is in the last five verses of chapter 6. That's where those promises are contained. There are seven of them. And those seven promises are intimate fellowship between God and His people if they will separate from sin and unholiness. And he describes it in several different ways of not even touching the unclean thing. Unclean things that are morally unclean, morally impure, places that are morally impure, music that is morally impure, friends that are morally impure. We need to get rid of all of them in order to be pure for Him. You say, I'd be lonely. Not with a holy God as your friend. And so having therefore these promises dearly beloved and to have these promises offered to us, it shows God's love. Let us cleanse ourselves. They were already cleansed at the cross. They were already cleansed in regeneration. But let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, dirtiness, moral impurity, the junk of the world, not unrighteousness, filthiness. Let us cleanse ourselves from all of it. Let's wash our televisions. Let's wash our homes. Let's wash our thoughts. Let's wash the places that we go. Let's be a holy church for the Lord. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The the real fear of God is to, Proverbs 8.13, the real fear of God is to hate evil. Hate 
evil. Hate evil. That's the real fear of God. Because the real fear of God drives you to be holy because He is holy. And if you're fearing Him, that means you don't want to displease Him who is the God and object of your fear. Therefore, you will hate the things that He despises and love the things that He loves. And He loves moral purity. Now the world's going to make fun of you. Your flesh is going to make fun of you. The devil's going to make fun of you. Do you want to be great in the sight of the Lord? Then mock their efforts to make fun of you. Okay, how can we do it better? You know, we hate it by nature. It's unpopular. It requires sacrifice. Do you know all these things? If we just think for a few minutes on what, what can we do to, to be holier, it's obvious from the Word of God that we should be holier. But the first place, in my opinion, that you need to start, my judgment, you need to start to recognize that you hate it. And so as you make changes in your life, and there's part of you just saying, this is ridiculous. Why do we have to be so extreme? Where'd you get off the boat? And what country are you from? Are they illiterates? where you came from, that you would even say such a thing like that or think of it. You know what? It's in all of us. Why do we have to be so extreme? No one else is being extreme today, and they all love Jesus. What Jesus are you talking about? The Jesus of the Bible is absolutely pure. Try to get into His presence without purity. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you while they're calling upon Him for all their great ministerial works and their large parking lots. We, we need to understand that we're going to hate it. It's going to be unpopular. The kids won't like it. It's going to take sacrifice. The in-laws aren't going to like it. It's going to make us strange. Didn't First Peter chapter 4 tell us that the more we follow Christ, they're going to call you strange? And as we go into the perilous times farther and farther, they're going to call us more and more strange for trying to be holy. We have to learn to hate sin instead, instead of hating holiness. We need to hate sinners and their influence on us, their sinful lifestyle, their sinful entertainment, their light preachers. Each member must daily or more frequently confess all your sins in self-examination. We want to clean, we want to clean the slate every day before the Lord, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Each member needs to be vigilant and severe against the carnal sinful inputs that are all around us and creep into our houses. There's more devices in our houses than ever before in the history of the world to undo our holiness. And He is holy. But He's chosen us for this generation. We don't have that 9 foot 9 inch big mouthed uncircumcised Philistine challenging us. We have the world and the smartphone in your purse challenging us. And so we have a different Philistine to face. Are you willing to face him? It'll please the Lord more than taking down the big cyclops of the Philistines to live a holy life. Romans chapter 1. You don't need to turn to it. Just think about it with me. We often go to Romans 1 to describe the mind alteration that God has done to our country and the rest of the world in the 21st century regarding sodomy. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. We just read horrible things. Women, there, women burning in their lust against, for women and men for men. And it's all messed up and it's terrible. And we know the cause of it. There's two things. 
Neither were they thankful, and they worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. We're told, okay? But there's a long list in that chapter. And it says all the things in the list are not convenient. And it gets to the last verse, and it says this, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Not only do the same, so that's one way we can directly sin by doing the things in the list. Or, we can have pleasure in other people that do the things in the list. By having anyone as our friends that do the things in the list. Or, watching television where people are doing the things in the list and we're getting pleasure from watching them. Let me read it to you again. Who, knowing the judgment of God, we know the judgment of God, that they which do such things, not on, that they which do such things, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That is a, that is a broad warning that it's not just direct committing of those sins that God condemns, but it's taking pleasure by friendship or taking pleasure by entertainment of those that do those things. One of the most unholy things in your house is your television. David said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. That was his statement of holiness. What about yours? You cannot be more holy than your affections and your thoughts. Purify them all. Only think pure thoughts. Only have pure ambitions. It will result in impure conduct if you don't do that. Your speech reflects affections and thoughts. Improve it to be holier than it's been before. Let's make our speech holier and holier because it will reflect an improving heart, improving thoughts, and it will be a positive influence on us, on each other. Any use of wine or strong drink must be guarded to maintain holy conversation. I don't care if you tell me you're not drunk. Are you relaxed enough that you're speaking things that you shouldn't? Are you relaxed enough that you're looking at things that you shouldn't? Because that's the warning in Proverbs chapter 23. Our Saturday night time of preparation, quite unique to us, is part of consecration. That's how we get consecrated, confess our sins, purify ourselves, focus our attention on what's going to come the next day, and show the Lord how important it is to be in His house and to be prepared to be in His house. So we just don't bop in here with a cup of java, bouncing around and thinking that we're doing something pleasing to the Lord. It's holy. It's holiness to come before the Lord. Holiness becometh thine house. I'm thankful that for the last 15 years, most of you have maintained discipline, holy discipline in your families to have Saturday nights from 6 o'clock on, separate from the world, and considering things pertaining to the worship of God the next day. Let's renew that. Let's keep doing that. It's simply a little choice on our parts on how we can be better for the house of the Lord on His day. We need to reject unholy family or friends to consecrate yourself like the Levites. When Moses told his 3,000 Levite brothers and cousins to consecrate themselves, that was to make themselves holy, what did it mean? 
It mean, it meant strap on your swords and go from this side of the camp to the other side of the camp and every friend and family member that you find that is not living a holy life and was messing around with that idolatrous worship, kill them. And you can consecrate yourselves to the Lord as priests worthy of His name. Now see, that's just a whole different language that anybody even knows about. But that's what the Bible teaches. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And so the Levites got rid of them. And that's it was described as an act of consecration. Because to be pure and holy, we need to have those that are impure and unholy out of our lives and out of our church. I would rather have a smaller holy church than a larger compromising church, and I hope that all of you agree. We need to desire, expect, and accept preaching on this subject, no matter what title may come with it. We need to continue to embrace strict discipline to avoid compromise in our membership. Keep your body, your physical body, the Holy Spirit's temple, holy by avoiding any sinful activities. You don't keep it holy by keeping it physically fit. You keep it holy by not having anything morally impure done with it. Whatever your body can do, it can sleep in too long. It can fornicate. It can commit other sins. But the Holy Spirit's dwelling inside. We want to guard our bodies because of 1 Corinthians 6 and other places. All sexual thoughts, conversation, or actions should be limited by God's standards. They're not old-fashioned. They're right, true, and perfect for the happiness of man. And if you want to pervert that which is right, it's not going to profit you, and you're going to be held accountable for it. Women need to kill idleness and use the 168 hours in a week. This is what the Bible describes for holy women in the New Testament. They need to kill pride, debate with their husbands or anyone else, tattling, busybodies, folly, and other sins. Holy women, and the Bible does tell us about holy women. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, the, like the holy women. It refers to holy women. What are holy women like? Well, they fear their husbands with a meek and quiet spirit like Sarah calling Him Lord. The God that I am the ambassador of knows every one of you wives who open your mouths against your husbands. You're not holy. We need to emphasize the holiness of God versus His love as we consider His attributes so that we don't get ourselves distorted. We want to emphasize the holiness of God, when we consider Him. Every choice that you make today, tomorrow, however many days the Lord gives us, let's start personally, then family, then church. Let's be holy. I am out of time, but give me five minutes to introduce a subject so that you can even get started on it. It's personal devotions. We've covered seven points so far. Christ-centered, more of the Holy Spirit, prayer, more prayer in our lives, spiritual-mindedness, a heavenly perspective, 
relationship with God over bare religion and truth and holiness. One of the ways to get there, and I've done my best to take these traits and rank them. But you know, that's rather subjective. But here we are at number eight, and it's personal devotions. Having a personal time where you go and meet with God every day. At least once. Very briefly. Does the Bible really teach it? David and Daniel prayed three times a day. They weren't ministers. They were king and a king's counselor of a pagan nation. David was personally obsessed with God's Word, and rightly so, on a personal level. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Time with the Word of God and with God. Jesus said, go into thy closet. He knew, he assumed that there was going to be a personal relationship with the Lord, and he used a metaphorical closet of getting away from everyone else, which means it's not here. It's not church. It's not mealtime. It's you with the Lord. Jesus assumed it. In Matthew chapter 6, He says, go and worship your Lord. Go and pray in secret. No one else even knows where you are and what you're doing. Go do it in secret. I'll reward you openly. You're too busy? You're too busy? There's 168 hours and you waste the majority of them. It's a horrible temptation in our easy nation. And all the electrical inputs that come into our houses that keep us going when we should be slowing. Jesus taught secret devotions His Father would reward openly three times in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus withdrew Himself numerous times for His own personal devotions. If Jesus needed personal devotions, how much do you need them? He withdrew Himself to be alone and to be separate, to get away from His apostles, to get away from the crowds so that He could spend time with the Lord. Peter went up on a housetop about noon. How big was the church meeting up there? He was up there by himself to pray. Acts chapter 10. Christians armed themselves individually and personally with the, with the whole armor of God and then were supposed to pray much. James said that he that is merry, let him sing psalms. That's not at church. We don't have services where you're all singing something different. It's individual. Great men are described in the Bible as using these verbs when they get alone with God from one book. They meditate on God, His Word, and His works. They muse, they ponder, they consider, they search, they examine, they think, they remember, they commune, and they delight. Those verbs are describing what a person does by himself with the Lord and His Word, remembering His works and examining himself and talking to himself, communing with his own heart. See, this is a whole lot more than just blasting out some ancient landmarks of the faith that we can check off. Yep, we believe that. Yep, we believe that. And have no relationship with the Lord, no personal devotions, but we sure have checked the list off that we have the ancient landmarks. 
Our lives and world are too busy, too noisy, always distracting us from quiet time. Does the Bible say, be still and know that I am God? Does the Bible say, let all the earth keep silence before Him? Even home is no longer safe for refuge. It used to always be a safe place for refuge until the last hundred years because of the phones, computers, televisions, radios, and so forth. You know, some of these devices can be useful. You can call up Scripture, call up sermons, call up outlines, call up songs, call up psalms. So the, the devices can be useful, but they're, they're usually not. You need to set aside a time for it. It's usually better in the morning. You need to be focused. It needs to be personal, intimate, transparent with the Lord, supplicating time with God where you're begging Him. You need to be eager about it. You need to be impressionable. Impressionable is usually a sign of weakness, but you want to be impressionable with the Lord. When I get to Job 33 in a little while, Elihu is going to condemn Job for not being impressionable with the Lord. And we want to be impressionable. We want Him to be able to move us and convict us very easily on the inside. We want to be vulnerable to Him, receptive, expressive to Him, and thankful. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And for this church, and for your families, and for each of you, and for me, to have greater personal holiness and more personal devotion and time of devotion and a personal family altar and a personal altar and a personal closet where you go and meet with the Lord like the Job's, David's, Daniel's, Jesus, Peter's, and others described in the Bible. It's not this four hours a week here. It's outside of here. Then when we come in here, we are ready And the Lord knows we're ready, and He receives our worship.